Shadows Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the philosopher Derek Lieben. Uh, Derek is an associate professor of philosophy and the department chair at the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown. Uh, Derek was kind enough to come on the podcast today to talk about uh, a recent article of his in Philosophy Now called Pascal's Artificial Intelligence Wager. Um, we talked about artificial intelligence and Pascal's wager, as you can gather from that title. Um, but then the conversation sprawled to other related but, um, you know, very interesting things. I, it was a very fun talk. Um, really appreciate uh, Derek coming on to speak with me. So uh, without further preamble, here is my talk with Derek Lieben. Because I, I, I emailed you about that nice short piece um, in Philosophy Now, which is a great mm -hmm. um, online publication and in print, I would assume, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, called Pascal's Artificial Intelligence Wager. Um, that was, I know that it was at least available in August, I think, because that's when I emailed you. Um, mm -hmm. How that was, you published that in 2020. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a cool, it's a very short um, kind of look into the risks of general AI, which is, you know, obviously a topic that is more and more relevant. Um, but so I'm curious how you conceive of, of what AI is, because my rather lay notion of it is just that, you know, artificial intelligence would be the ability, so I, I guess, well, and we'll get into this, but like, I guess I, I would leave consciousness out of the definition. So it doesn't, so AI would not have to be conscious, um, but it has to be able to compute, you know, and in maybe like loose terms, think in roughly the same ways that we tend to. Do you agree with that? Uh, so yeah, the term artificial intelligence doesn't really have a well worked out, agreed upon definition. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, it means any kind of machine that performs tasks like a human does. Um, more and more in the 21st century, it's meant uh, models that are trained using some kind of machine learning procedure. Mm -hmm. um, but machine learning is just one part of AI. It's not the only part of AI. Um, and there are, of course, machines that do some things very narrowly like a human can do. Uh, that's sometimes called narrow AI. So for instance, a machine that drives a car by itself, a machine that determines someone's credit score by itself, uh, a machine that, for instance, also recognizes images or faces or produces speech and language. Uh, these are all narrow AI systems because they do the kinds of things that that humans do. But general AI is something which is supposed to do everything that humans do, and maybe more. And again, there's no well agreed upon definition of what this means. But uh, when people talk about general AI, they usually mean something that does everything a human can do that can play chess and drive a car. And recognize images and use language, it can carry over its knowledge from one domain into other domains. Uh, and so I usually in my own research focus on narrow AI and the risks and benefits of narrow AI. But 
I'm also, just as a philosopher and a human, interested in general AI. This is something that um, is probably going to happen at some point. Uh, there are some fun polls that have been done of the computer science community about what people expect or when people expect general AI to actually happen. Um, but at some point in the future, uh, it is likely to happen. And that's, that's what I am writing about in this article is uh, how should our, what should our feelings be about this kind of thing? Should we be very worried about it or, or not very worried about it? Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the other crucial piece is that artificial intelligence, when it becomes generalized, um, doesn't really require us anymore as an input to continue running. And that's where the promise and the danger lies, right? Yeah, so narrow AI might also satisfy that. So mm -hmm. narrow AI doesn't need a human to drive a car. Uh, it can drive on its own. Um, it might not be able to do it well for very long. You know, a Tesla on autopilot can drive on its own uh, without any human input. Uh, so that is in some sense a, an AI and that's an important part of what people usually have in mind when they talk about AI is that it's pretty free from human supervision, free from human intervention, that it can act autonomously. Uh, autonomous is an important word in the history of philosophy and it just means making rules for yourself. Uh, not doing what other people tell you to do, but making up your own mind. And so that is a big part of AI systems is that they can act with minimal human intervention. Mm. You, you opened the piece. I, I like the way you opened it and it made me, you know, kind of cynically laugh um, because, you know, you talk about in 2008, um, you know, the, the physicists um, doing an experiment at CERN where some, some people predicted, yeah, it's very unlikely, but no one declared it was impossible for this actually to just open up a black hole um, and destroy, I mean, literally everyone on the planet and including the planet. Um, it made me also think of the Trinity test in 1945, how... yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was J. Robert Oppenheimer's quote, you know, I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds. Like pe people literally did not know. I mean, there was some non-zero chance that it ignited the atmosphere. Uh, right. And, and they just did it anyway. Like we show absolutely no ability to not do something if we have the ability to do it. And you link, you link that to, you know, is it possible that we are rolling the dice in some non-zero way with AI in this same sense? Yeah, so the field of existential threat assessment is a really interesting and weird field. It's one that is not necessarily connected to AI, but in the last 15 years or so, there's been a lot of discussion about the overlap there. Um, existential threats to humanity are the kinds of things that you might uh, think of as Let's just include nuclear weapons mm, super or bugs. Yeah. super bugs, maybe climate change, depending on how severe that winds up being. Um, asteroid impacts, large scale asteroids. Um, you know, and so how, how should we think about these threats, these events? And the weird thing about them is that they involve what you might think of as sort of infinite losses. Mm. Um, this is something that one of the original inventors of 
expected utility theory and decision theory, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Blaise Pascal originally proposed. And it's funny to me that as soon as there became a formal mathematical framework for thinking about uh, risks and threats and rewards, Pascal immediately applied it to talking about infinite rewards and, and God. Mm. That didn't have to be the case. But just in everyday life, you know, every time you get into a car, you're taking some risk with your own life. Uh, every time you eat some food, you're taking a risk that you could choke. Uh, and so everything we do in our everyday life involves some, some risk, some danger. And usually the way we evaluate those risks are we uh, estimate how likely this is going to be and how bad it would be if it happened. Um, so non-lethal risks, uh, such as, for instance, just losing some money. If I play at a lottery, I might estimate, okay, well, how likely am I to win? How much is the jackpot? And there's an easy formula to do where you just multiply the likelihood of winning by the payoff that you get. And then you compare that to the cost of the ticket. And if the likelihood times the payoff is more than the cost of the ticket, then expected value theory says you should buy that. If it's less than expected value theory says you shouldn't buy it. And almost always lottery games are rigged so that the expected value of winning is like half what it is the cost of the, the price of paying, uh, playing. So that is how we evaluate risks in everyday life. But existential threats are, are weird, especially existential threats to the entire uh, future of humanity. Because it's not obvious how to evaluate an infinite loss or an infinite gain. Mm. Um, when you multiply the probability of some very bad thing uh, happening, or I'm sorry, the probability times the payoff of something very bad, or the probability times the payoff of something very good, you get some number. And you can do calculations with these numbers. But when you multiply the probability of something times infinity, then you get these weird results. Mm. And so uh, we can go a lot of directions here, but I don't know if you wanted to first talk about uh, existential threats uh, like asteroids and superbugs, uh, or if you wanted to talk about Pascal's wager. I, I was thinking Pascal's wager um, because it's it's a, it really is an interesting way to think about this specifically because you know the the concept. I don't know. Did you did you come up with this term, um, the antinatalism about artificial general intelligence? I liked that. I did. Yeah, yeah. I actually. Uh, thought it was funny it is. that the same kinds of arguments that people are giving for not creating AI are similar to the kinds of arguments that people give for not creating new humans. Uh, antinatalism is a, is a surprisingly popular position, or at least it's yeah. been growing in its popularity over the last five or 10 years. Uh, especially in, in message forums online. Um, David Benatar, this South African philosopher, is, is the most famous advocate of this position. Yeah. Uh, and it basically says that, that we shouldn't create new humans because the, the suffering we create is, is more than the, the happiness we create or that the dangers we introduce by having children are greater than the, the potential rewards that we would reap. Hmm. Um, I, I thought that was just a cute little jab. It wasn't really part of my argument. I mm -hmm. just uh, thought that was a funny analogy to make. 
Yeah. So wouldn't wouldn't the the two views sort of antinatalism about humans and antinatalism about art, artificial intelligence differ in how I guess we evaluate them? So antinatalism about human beings would be that you know for that human being everything in some total is is worse than it is good. Um, but antinatalism about artificial intelligence could be sure. I mean, they could be just basking in the glory of the universe after they've killed all of us, but it's like, from our perspective, we don't want to initiate that process. Um, not necessarily because, I mean, we can get into this with the consciousness aspect of it, but it's not necessarily that utility wouldn't be maximized. It's that, it's that we wouldn't be part of that utility maximization. Yeah, and every utility calculation assumes some some measurement for how we're measuring happiness and suffering, whose happiness and suffering we're measuring, whose we're not. So you're right, if we're only considering the, or if we're considering the happiness and suffering of the AI system, then maybe it wouldn't matter if it replicated itself and destroyed humanity and spread throughout the cosmos, then that would be more overall happiness and we should mm. be happy about that. But yeah, I, I also think it's plausible to say, well, for the sake of this calculation, let's just consider human happiness and suffering. Mm. Um, that's even broader than we, we might use to calculate happiness and suffering. So if somebody's like a subjective hedonist, which just means I only care about my own happiness and suffering, then my own death is like an infinite loss. So I consider my own death to be just like the worst possible thing. And I don't care what happens after I die. Uh, if you're this subjective hedonist, you only care about your own pleasure and, and pain and that what happens after you die doesn't matter. But most people aren't like that. Uh, most people care about the future of humanity and they think of their own death as something that is sad, but not necessarily an infinite loss. It's just a, a very, very serious loss. On the other hand, uh, I think most people think that the destruction of humanity, the permanent destruction of humanity would be uh, an infinite loss in some sense. It would just be the destruction of any, anything we care about, anything you could ever potentially care about, uh, that would be the end of it. Hmm. Um, and what's weird about thinking about infinite losses is that you get into this Pascal's wager scenario where all of a sudden any possibility of an infinite loss also becomes an infinite risk uh, because a small probability times a very uh, times an infinite loss is an infinitely bad risk. Mm. A small probability of an infinitely big reward is an infinitely potential payoff. Um, and so there are there are some objections you could use to this reasoning, but in the article I just sort of accept it. And I say, okay, well, let's accept Pascal's reasoning here um, and see, see where it leads us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because maybe we should be explicit for people who don't. I think most people have kind of like a, a lay intuition of what Pascal's wager is. But explicitly, he says, um, you know, we're at this kind of agnosticism point and you can either believe in God or you cannot believe in God. Now, if you believe in God and God exists, then hooray, you get to go to heaven and bask in glory with him forever. And if he doesn't exist, then it's no issue because you're just dead anyway. Whereas if you don't believe in God and he does exist, it's infinite loss because you get tortured in hell forever um, or reincarnated, or et cetera. Um, but if you don't believe in God 
and there is no God, then it's only a finite gain because you're right about terrestrial things in this life. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, I had a few notes about the, the objections to that. Um, because so, so the first one, and this is, this is one that like, um, really convinced me a lot when I was, um, like a, you know, kid kind of leaving religion, um, the psychological impossibility objection where, you know, you like, you can question, like, is it actually possible? Like, is this what we mean when we say belief to, to kind of believe in some, you know, um, utility maximization based way that like, I don't have any good reason to believe God exists, but because I'm going to bet on it, therefore I really do believe that it exists. And it seems like that's a great counter to, to Pascal's argument for God, but it doesn't seem to actually hold as much for the AI case. Um, because if it is in fact possible, it is in fact possible. It's, it's, it's baked into the kind of decision tree in that, in that case. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So Pascal's wager, you're right, has some classic objections to it. Uh, and that's one of the classic objections, mm -hmm. uh, which is just that if you pay me or if you offer to pay me a million dollars right now to believe that I have a third arm growing out of my chest, I'm just not going to be able to do it. I can't force myself to believe something contrary to evidence, uh, which is an interesting sort of argument against free will in the realm of belief. Uh, I'm mm. sort of forced or compelled to believe things that I have evidence for. I'm genuinely incapable mm. of just believing some random thing, even if it would be really good for me. Yeah. Uh, this is a problem with, with happiness research too, is that there's a lot of happiness research suggesting that religious people may be happier than, than atheists. But it's not like I could just all of a sudden force myself to believe. Now, Pascal does have a response to this in his Pensees, where he writes about this. And he says, well, OK, I'll grant you that. But uh, human beings are creatures of habit. And if we go to church and just go mm. through the motions, then eventually you'll find yourself justifying it to yourself. And <laughs> you know, who knows? If you wind up believing just a little bit, then maybe that's better than nothing. Yeah. Um, now, I agree with you that this argument is not plausible for a lot of other reasons. There are these other classic objections, the many gods objection, which is that, well, uh, let's assume that there are all these other gods that will punish you with infinite uh, badness and reward you with infinite goodness for believing or not believing in them. Uh, then which one do you pick? It seems like you should be indifferent. You should just flip a coin or roll a, roll a die uh, to pick which of these gods to believe in. Um, even then, Pascal might say, well, that's still better than atheism. It's, it's, you might as well pick one. Um, but I agree with you that the Pascal argument historically for believing in God is, is not that compelling. But in the case of AI, it might be compelling because you're right, it's not an argument to believe something. It's an argument uh, about creating something. It's mm -hmm. saying, uh, in this case, maybe there's infinite risk in creating this thing and finite gains in creating it. And therefore, we just shouldn't make it. Mm -hmm. I take it this is the kind of argument that antinatalists about AI are giving. Who are some of these antinatalists about AI? Uh, Nick Bostrom is the most famous one, mm -hmm. um, although it's hard to pin him down. He's notoriously hard to pin down about his actual claims. He often will just say, well, this is, I'm just giving these arguments. I don't, okay. I'm not actually endorsing any of them. Um, Sam Harris has advocated something like this. Uh, Elon Musk has, in some provocative tweets, uh, suggested that 
AI, general AI is more dangerous than nuclear weapons, that we should be really concerned about it. He was on a podcast with uh, Lex Friedman where he was uh, arguing for that as well. So I, I interpret these arguments to have sort of a Pascal style reasoning. Uh, that's, that was the first part of, of the article is saying mm -hmm. that I think they're using sort of Pascal style reasoning, but if they're doing that, they're actually leaving something else out. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me that the, um, the infinite utilities critique where, where people say, you know, like, Pascal, like, you're off your rocker, because how do we actually factor in? I mean, you, you pointed this out a little bit before, like, how do we actually do calculations with infinities? Um, but I find, I, I, to be honest, I kind of find that the weakest objection, both in Pascal's argument for God and this Pascalian thinking about artificial intelligence, because it seems like, I mean, you know, if, if it's like, if you want to expand it as far as you want, you know, let's say it's not just human life, but it's all conscious uh, life. Well then, I mean, yeah, that does kind of get closer to infinity, like at least local infinity, like in our species or in our universe. Um, so I find that objection to be a little bit moot in both cases. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah. So I'll say just personally, I don't care if non-intelligent life survives after humans. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, personally, I confess, I only care about intelligent life. Uh, and if humanity winds up getting destroyed, um, but like the fungi survive, and I, I just, I don't give a shit about yeah. the fungi. <laughs> yeah. uh, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Uh, I think that the kinds of things that, that matter are uh, human, uh, or I should just say intelligent, uh, experiences, intelligent life. And if intelligent life gets destroyed, then I agree with you. That seems like what I would mean by an infinite loss. That just seems to me like equivalent to the destruction of the universe. You might as well just destroy the entire universe because if intelligent life is not there, then nothing really matters to me. And again, you could object to that, but this is just how I'm getting the argument off the ground. Yeah, I find that a very reasonable assumption to make. I mean, it, it, it's hard for me to locate any value in just a barren universe. Like if there's just kind of rocks orbiting other rocks, there's, you know, it's just like, well, where is the value there? Um, yeah. Would you, I guess if I would phrase that not in terms of intelligence, but in terms of consciousness, but is that, is that, so you said intelligent experiences, is that just a different phrasing for the same thing? Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on that. I mean, we could argue about whether um, a being without consciousness can experience happiness uh, and is valuable in some way or not. But I don't. I don't think that's too important. Okay. Say. okay. The destruction of intelligence and consciousness. Okay. <laughs> let's be. Let's be expansive. Now I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, um, one thing I did want to correct when you were talking about Pascal's wager. Uh, or not correct, but expand on, is that Pascal, when he's talking about agnosticism, um, he's willing to grant the atheist that it might be super unlikely that God exists. Like, let's just grant that there is a 99.999% chance that God does not exist. That's fine. And so he's only looking for some glimmer of possibility. If there's even a small fraction of a chance that God might exist, then that will still give you infinite potential payoffs for believing in him and infinite potential losses mm -hmm. for 
not believing in him. And so when it comes to AI, we might say the same thing, which is um, no matter how likely or unlikely you think this thing is to uh, destroy humanity, if there's even a small fraction of a possibility of that happening, then the infinite losses that would ensue are, are just so great that we should not create this thing. They would outweigh any finite gains that we can get from it. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Because I mean, obviously, mathematically, the only way to erase an, an infinity would be to multiply it by a zero. Um, yeah. So anything above that, you know, as small a number as you want, it's still infinity. Exactly. So, exactly. so that vitiates. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's what I was calling the antinatalist argument. Mm -hmm. That's how mm -hmm. I that's how I characterize that argument. But they they argue that it's much more significant than a small fraction of a percentage. Uh, that, like Elon Musk suggested, that it might be even more dangerous than than the risk posed by nuclear weapons. I don't know. I wanted to ask you. I like asking people about this um, yeah. because my intuitions are sort of shot uh, <laughs> on on these issues. I don't even have any intuition. Been in the anymore. field too long. I, yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. Been, yeah. Um, but on a scale of like, let's say zero to a hundred, where zero is you're not worried about it at all. And 100 is your, it's the thing you're most worried about. <laughs> it's just like maximum worry. Uh, how worried are you about, let's say, I'll ask you a few existential threats. So let's say okay. climate change, uh, destroying humanity, nuclear weapons, mm. uh, destroying humanity, and, and general AI destroying humanity. Okay, so for, I have a clarifying question first. So when you say worried, are you talking about intellectually worried or emotionally worried? Because... I have a disturbing asymmetry between those two. Like I'm yeah. in, in, extremely intellectually worried, but I can't find myself like actually emotionally pulled by a lot of those things. I agree. And in fact, I was being deliberately ambiguous there because <laughs> you might say, well, when we get in a car, we should be a lot more worried than we are. But yes, right? there's a lot yes. more of a risk in getting in a car than there is a risk in getting on a plane. Yeah, exactly. And yet I definitely feel more worried about getting on a plane than getting in a car. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. I, I was being ambiguous there. I guess I could leave it up to you to interpret uh, <laughs> okay. how you how you want to <clears throat> scale those. Um, that's a good question. So so it was um, climate change, uh, nuclear warfare, or nuclear annihilation, and AI, right? Yep. So yeah, cl climate change intellectually all three of them are above 50%. I'm, it's, those seem to be more likely a problem than not. Um, I mean, I, so, sometimes like I, when I actually think about nuclear deterrence, I mean like that, that really does actually ratchet the emotional concern way up. Um, I listened to, have you ever heard Dan Carlin's podcasts? Oh yeah. Um, he had that one it was like a, it was just a, like a short, well, I was going to say short five hour one, but it like wasn't a series <laughs> one uh, yeah. on, on the, just the, the cold war and the Cuban missile crisis. And I mean, like that actually scared the shit out of me. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple months back to, to realize that someone like Trump actually had his hands on the nuclear football at one point, or at least had the potential. I mean, that does ratchet the emotional severity up for me. Um, but yeah, so all of them, all of them are for sure over 50%. Um, it, it would have to I, I like 80s or 90s for all of them, honestly. I mean, like cl climate change is just going to be, I mean, that's, that's closer to 100%. That might be the highest in terms of, 
in my lifetime, perhaps surely affecting something. Um, mm. Because, because with, you know, nuclear deterrence, it, it's just that that one's just that I see that as more of a coin flip or like a dice roll where it's like it, it, it either could go to hell or it could not. But mm -hmm. climate change is like it's actively going to hell unless we do something which we've just shown no ability to do. And I actually wonder if that's very analogous to the AI situation where it's like right right now, it just seems like we are on the course to have a private company with no safeguards just develop this. Um, and and it, it seems it actually seems to be much more on par with the climate change uh, analogy than the nuclear deterrence analogy in that in that way. I don't know yeah. what you think about that. Yeah, so I will. Sorry about that. <laughs> I will. Um, I will come back to this mm. later because this is actually going to be fuel for my for my argument later on. Um, but the, the second half of my little article there, and it's just like two pages. So the mm. second page of my two pages <laughs> uh, is basically saying, "Hey, there are a bunch of other serious existential threats that humanity faces too, besides AI." Uh, and so the second part of the argument is saying um, that if you are only worried about the, the existential threat from AI, you were sort of ignoring the existential threat from these other things yeah. and the possibility, which I take to be a, a real possibility, that we can only survive these sorts of threats with the help of some kind of super intelligent AI. Uh, so if that's the case, then there becomes this other branch on the decision tree uh, where on the one branch, we create artificial intelligence um, that has some kind of infinite risk for destroying humanity. But if we don't create artificial intelligence, then there's also an infinite risk, uh, namely that we can't survive the future without this kind of super intelligent being. And so I call in the paper those two different catastrophes. One of them is catastrophe alpha and one is catastrophe beta. Um, and if you accept the Pascal style reasoning, then what's weird about these is that they just cancel out. Um, mm. The infinite losses of creating AI or the infinite risk of creating AI is perfectly canceled out uh, by the potential infinite loss of not creating AI. Um, and then all we have to consider are the finite gains and losses uh, that we would have from creating or not creating it after that. Yeah. I had a question about the potential canceling out. It seemed to me, so I, I didn't want to object to the positive infinity and negative infinity aspect of those uh, because they both seemed, well, I guess it's actually just two sides of the negative because in one case it's AI that destroys us. In the other case, it's AI that fails to save us. So we're being destroyed in either sense. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering if perhaps they, they actually might not cancel out if we assign or have good reason to assign a different likelihood to those cases being um, what, what actually does or would happen. Um, so for instance, like, I'm, I'm just, you know, just thinking if we do create AI and we solve the control problem, then it seems overwhelmingly likely that we will in fact use AI to solve all these problems because mm -hmm. we've solved the control problem. Um, but if we don't, then it's overwhelmingly likely that it does destroy us. 
but, but I'm just wondering if sort of like, you know, I'm not a person who would have a good idea of the true numbers of, of percentages here, but if the, because it's, it's almost like both, both the negative infinities, infinities are still there, but I wonder if a different likelihood that we get to either of those would create an asymmetry there. I don't know. So the good thing about Pascal's reasoning is that if there's, let's say, a 70% chance that if we create AI, it destroys humanity. Um, but there's a 30% chance that if we don't create AI, something else destroys humanity, uh, then both of those expected values are actually equal. Mm. And I understand your intuition because it's my intuition too, mm. that like a 30% chance of infinite losses uh, is actually better than a 70% chance of infinite losses. Um, and you know, vice versa, that the 70% chance of destroying humanity is worse then the 30% chance, you might say, well, I'll go with the 30% chance of like climate change and nuclear weapons destroying humanity, then the 70% chance of AI. But the weird thing about Pascal style reasoning is that if these are really infinite losses, then they are the same number. That 30% of negative infinity is the same as 70% of negative infinity. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand your objections here. Um, Anytime you start doing calculations with infinities anywhere, things get really weird. Uh, so in mathematics, when you start doing, you know, infinite sums, you can get these sorts of weird results like the sum of the, the natural numbers, one plus two plus three plus four plus five and so on, uh, seems to equal negative one twelfth uh, in some ways of formulating that by using like the, the Riemann zeta function. Uh, and it's like, well, how does that make sense? Uh, it doesn't seem to make sense. That's just one example where infinities seem to not make sense. Um, but if, if Pascal's assumption is correct, that any probability of an infinite loss is an infinite risk, mm -hmm. no matter how small or big, then this argument goes through. But if you just reject that assumption, then I, I completely concede. Yeah. that this argument doesn't work uh, and that maybe we should be more worried about AI than other other global catastrophic threats. Mm -hmm. And so on that sort of upshot of it, you you it, from how I, I'm reading you, um, you say, you seem to say that since these these two uh, possibilities cancel out, then the analysis then does it really does turn to the more kind of terrestrial considerations. Um, mm -hmm. Do I, I'm understanding you right there? That's exactly right. So then you just, you cancel out, you know, in the article, I have this little decision tree and mm -hmm. basically you cancel out infinite loss alpha and you cancel out infinite loss beta. Mm -hmm. And all you have left are uh, either you have the status quo, humanity survives without AI's assistance, uh, or you have these gains from AI. And I call them finite gain, mm -hmm. gains. Uh, and that just means AI helps solve all of humanity's problems. Right? Mm, yeah. And so uh, that's, that's finite in the mathematician sense of just really, really, really great um, that we can perhaps now survive the cosmos mm. uh, indefinitely. Maybe AI could help us figure out a way to defeat the second law of thermodynamics and uh, somehow spread our intelligence throughout the, the universe. This is the <laughs> 
the ending of uh, uh, Carl Sagan's, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac Asimov's uh, short story, The Last Question, mm. uh, where human beings wind up being the sort of primordial spark that lights the universe on fire uh, and spreads this, this intelligence everywhere. So I, I'm excited about that possibility. I, I like fantasizing and dreaming about it. Uh, the physicist David Deutsch has a book uh, called The Beginning of Infinity, where yeah. he tries to argue for something like that. I'm, I'm certainly in no position to professionally evaluate that, that <laughs> or not, but um, I, I like the idea of that. I would like for humanity and intelligence and consciousness to, to continue. Um, and if it's a significant likelihood that we can't continue, that intelligence and consciousness cannot continue without AI, then it seems to me like it's just as much of a risk to not create AI than it is to create it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it seems to me that you it's at least conceivable that you could arrive at the same conclusion, even if you do allow for these sort of percentages of not only the outcomes, but the percentages of the arrows, it, for lack of a better term, um, in, in your decision tree. And it seems like maybe the most important arrow, in my opinion, might be on your, on your diagram, the very bottom one, where it's what are the chances that we could survive without mm -hmm. AI's assistance, given our current state because if that is that percent of chance is low enough then i suddenly shift from being rather risk averse to joining your optimistic train very quickly um, that's exactly why i asked you earlier what your uh evaluation of the yeah. non-ai catastrophic risks is because if you think it's pretty high i mean if you're really worried about humans surviving which i kind of am yeah. Uh, I don't think about this very often. I, I have other stuff to do. Uh, I work on more narrow AI and problems that are being developed right now in the next five to 10 years of AI, you know, discriminating and producing results that are unfair and wind up resulting in all sorts of death and destruction and deprivation of resources. So that's, that's the stuff I mainly think about. Hmm. But every now and then, while I'm lying awake at night at 3 a.m. and I, I can't sleep, uh, I sometimes you know, worry about humanity's future long-term survival. Uh, and I am sometimes worried that we might not, with our human-level intelligence, be capable of, of sticking it out for the long haul. So, you know, as a species, we've been around for, uh, I don't know, 100,000 to 200,000 years-ish. Um, you know, evolutionary biologists can, of course, give me more exact numbers. <laughs> but um, when I think about what's the likelihood of us surviving for at least that long, at least as long as we've been around as a species, um, I get very worried. As you pointed out, just in the last 100 years, uh, we've had some pretty close calls. Uh, now, it could be there are some optimists like Steven Pinker uh, who want to say, yes, that maybe we almost destroyed ourselves a few times in the 20th century there. Stanislav Petrov saved us and some <laughs> other uh, Russians who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yep. Uh, like this, uh, I forget his name, but there was a there was a third commander on, on one of the Soviet subs in the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, who, uh, when 
when they were about to launch, he he was the only man who said, no, Ugh. let's not launch. Uh, and so it's those moments where, you know, I get worried about not just for nuclear weapons, but any other kind of technologies uh, that might be developed in the next few thousand or hundred thousand years uh, that, like you pointed out, might just ignite the, the atmosphere or create a black hole or something like that. Um, and so human beings, I sometimes get a little worried about, I get nervous about our intelligence. We're not that bright as a whole. Um, there's a famous quote from Newton where he says, you know, I just feel like a, a child playing in the beach with some pebbles looking out at the vast sea of knowledge. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's one of our best, Yeah, <laughs> uh, not morally best. Newton was a terrible person. Yeah. Um, but he was certainly one of our brightest. Uh, and I sometimes think, well, you know, in order to survive the cosmos, we we might need uh, to invent super intelligence. Yeah. And it seems to me like, you know, just just being pessimistically realist that like we, we just are going to go down the top part of the decision tree. Like, I find it almost inconceivable that we will actually decide to pull the brakes on this. Um, I don't know. You're, you probably have a better touch of, of the the leading, you know, minds in this field, but like, is there, is there any real sense in which we could actually say no to developing AI? So the usual argument about this is an analogy to biological and chemical weapons, hmm. where so far, at least, the bans, the international bans have been really effective. Um, and a big reason for this might just be it's in the interest of big, wealthy nations to keep weapons expensive. And if you make them affordable to everyone, then there are some real dangers that emerge. And already drone technology is, is sort of crossing this threshold where it's becoming cheap and easily accessible. So there have been some recent wars um, in the last few years that have proved decisive because of drone tech. And, mm -hmm. uh, and there are some serious worries about where that's going to go. Um, but at the level of artificial general intelligence, um, there are some arguments that make that analogy to chemical and biological weapons and just say, look, if the right people get behind it, then it could be a, an effective ban. Uh, if, it, if it's too expensive to make, if it just requires too many resources, uh, and it might just wind up being being a successful ban in some way. Um, so I don't know if that's going to actually work out or if in the future uh, it's just going to become so easy to develop an AGI that any just, you know, bored PS <laughs> undergrad in her basement could, could put together the right yeah. components to, to make it. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Yeah. Um, I agree with you about your point about uh, uh, being cynical about about humans. I just pointed out I'm a little bit disappointed with our intelligence. I, that also <laughs> applies to to our other uh, personality and character traits as well. I'm I'm not I'm not usually uh, very trusting of the humans, hmm. and so I agree with you that um, it might wind up being an inevitability. Yeah. Uh, but of course. You know, the point of philosophy is not to talk about what is inevitable, unless you're Karl Marx, um, <laughs> but it's it's about to say what's what we should and shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so even if it's inevitable, um, philosophers 
will say, well, here are some arguments why we shouldn't do it. We can kick and scream the whole way there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We can, yeah. At least we could say, I told you so. I mean, that's yeah. something. The final moments before, as it's destroying the earth, you know, right. I told you so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that was I, someone, I, I remember someone had that s style of objection to Pascal about like, you know, it's like, um, you kind of have the the near death experience and you come back and there's nothing and you get to say, I told you so, or something like that. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing about the afterlife is that the people who believe in it and were right never get to show off. Yeah. Uh, the people who wind up uh, not believing it, I guess if they go to hell, well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> the, people in, the people in heaven can sort of shout down like, see, I told you so. <laughs> Um, I guess it's the opposite, isn't it? That the people, who, if there's no afterlife, then we don't get to, the ones who don't believe in the afterlife like me, yeah. I don't get to rub it in anybody's face yeah. afterwards and say, see, I told you so. Which is a deep sadness. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. It seems so disanalogous to, I mean, I, I don't know exactly, maybe this was either Bostrom or, or someone who I, I picked this up from, but it's, it's my understanding that we're actually not um, lacking in computational power. It's not, it's not that the hardware at this point is really the hang up. It's more about the software. Um, and if that's true and, and the cost of processing power continues to decrease by whoever's law that is, I can't remember. Um, Moore's law. Yeah, that's right. It, it just seems like it's going to be analogous to if you could make a nuclear bomb by microwaving glass or something. Like, it'll just be too easy to do. Um, and and there's just, I mean, like you said, like a CS undergrad could just make, you know, an AI in her basement. And I just, I have very, like, deep skepticism that the part of the decision tree where we don't make it is actually a live option for us. Um, so, in, in, you know, I guess my more realist moments, then I do shift to your side and say like, okay, well then how can we just maximize, you know, the control problem working out for us and, and, and issues like that. Um, but I was curious actually how, if at all your view is, is looked at or altered or changed. Um, if we think about, you know, let's say, let's say that we, cause I was thinking about the, de the decision tree and I was wondering if another area where you could critique the ideas of the infinities canceling out is the time before catastrophe alpha or beta. So if there was a thousand year difference um, in the time that it took to reach either catastrophe, that does seem to, to create slightly more and less uh, of, a, of a negative infinity there. That's a really good point. And this actually gets to important questions about the purpose of life the meaning yeah. of life in general, uh, which is that, you know, if it turns out that humanity is going to get destroyed in a thousand years uh, compared to a million years, is that an interesting or important difference? Do I care about that? Mm. Um, I'll admit that just personally, uh, my own view is that I want humanity to survive and spread permanently throughout the cosmos. Uh, I have this, this view that life is only meaningful if it winds up producing some permanent change in the universe. And the second law of thermodynamics seems to be a serious problem uh, for that, which is if there's no way to enact a long-lasting and permanent change in the universe, uh, then life might be meaningless. Mm. And that's, that's depressing for me. Uh, you could, of course, have a view that, no, there's some kind of 
um, let's just call it limited or, or qualified amount of changes that you could make where if you make some kind of large, almost permanent change or that a very long lasting change, let's call it to, to the universe and have intelligence and consciousness for a thousand or a million years, that that would actually be very valuable. Mm -hmm. Then in that case, you're right, the calculations might change. Um, I suppose that I'm coming at this from a peculiar perspective, or maybe not a peculiar perspective. I actually don't know. There's, there hasn't been a lot of uh, good psychology and survey work on people's views about um, the, the purpose of life and, and the future of humanity. Uh, there's been a little bit of work on this, but usually it's this uh, sort of psychoanalytic work in the tradition of like Ernst Becker's The Denial of Death and mm. so on, where um, it, it doesn't actually go out and do survey research and uh, present people with, with scenarios like the one I was describing, where, you know, imagine that there was an asteroid that's going to destroy humanity in a thousand years versus a hundred years. Do you care about the difference, even though you're not around for either one? I've just informally asked some friends of mine about this. I don't know, I could ask you about this. Um, would it matter to you if humanity were going to get destroyed a hundred years after you die or a million years after you die? Oh, okay. So after I, cause I was going to say, I have like this naive hope that I might be alive in a hundred years still given like advances in medical oh, technology. Oh, sure, sure. Let's say a hundred years after, <laughs> after you die. I die. You know, I do. So I do kind of have a difference there. Um, and it, it's not a robust one, but it, but it is, it's sort of like, you know, I, so after, I guess kind of my views have been affected by, um, Thomas Nagel's essay, The Absurd, uh, about this. And, and it's like, I, I do, because, you know, he asks these, like, wonderful rhetorical questions. Like, you know, people often say, like, life is meaningless because X. And he, you know, sometimes they're, you know, we're so small. Like, the universe is so vast. How could we matter? And he asks, like, well, okay, if we were just, like, two-thirds the size of the universe, like, would we suddenly have meaning there? It's like, obviously not. Um, and, you know, people say that, you know, we only live like 80 years. And if he's like, well, if you could live 800 years, would you have objective meaning? They'd be like, well, no, it's like you still die. Um, and so like, you know, the, the kind of upshot for me, at least from that essay is that there is no objective meaning. There's really only local meaning. Um, and once I die, any sense of, so, so objective meaning is not present either when I'm alive or when I'm dead. It's just an illusion when I'm alive. Um, but local meaning is I believe something that's robustly there when I'm alive, but it's not when I'm dead, um, clearly because I'm dead. So if, if you know, life ends a hundred years after I'm dead versus a thousand, I almost have this kind of, it's probably very naive, but sense in which like I can affect the next hundred years more than I can affect the next thousand years. And so then it kind of, it percolates back and almost makes my life more meaningful now but of course i mean there's paradoxes in that too because if i can make a change it has the potential to affect more people over a thousand years if it's a big enough change than a, than a hundred years so i i don't think i think there's a lot of intuitions that when you compare them are very poorly aligned in this field yeah i agree it's it's sort of like the difference between getting on a plane and getting in a car where uh it feels like it is a difference even though mm. it 
really uh, shouldn't be. Or rather, uh, it feels, at least to me and a lot of people, when I get on a plane, like that's more risky when in fact it's the opposite. Mm. Um, so here you might say that, well, if, if the entire uh, population of intelligent and conscious beings are going to be destroyed at some point in the future, <clears throat> excuse me, then, um, then who cares when it's going to happen? Uh, and this is a very, what, what you might call telic view mm. of the purpose of life, where life is meaningful and human activity, intelligent activity is meaningful uh, because of what it brings about, because there's some kind of end state that it creates. Mm. Uh, and you're right, this is a less popular view uh, now than it used to be in the past. Um, but it's one I admit I still find personally very plausible. Um, I, I like to ask friends of mine and annoy them uh, at, at dinner parties when we used to have dinner parties uh, about, you know, if you knew that an asteroid was going to destroy all of humanity uh, in the next, let's say, five years versus the next, you know, 20 years or something, uh, would you change things about your life? Would you do things differently? Mm. And it seems like people would, but I'm not sure if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that's irrational yet. Yeah, it seems it seems clearly less rational when you make it a small difference like that five versus 20 is like that that's still just I mean, five years and 20 years can be so similar. Um, because it, it seems obvious that like if I was going to die in a week versus uh, I was going to die in 40 years, then then there is some way in which it's like perfectly reasonable for me to just kind of go hog wild for the next week or whatever, you know. Um, but like, so I don't know when you make it five versus 20, I, I, I guess there's this, I, maybe there's like an underlying skepticism that you should live in a way like, like, how, like, how could you live in a way that's sustainable for five years, but not for 20 or so it's like, so, there's some, I feel like there's some creeping intuition about that. Yeah. Um, so you're saying when you say hog wild, I assume you mean kind of <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like hedonism. Yeah, go um, ACDC style. Yeah. Right, and so you're saying, the, the question is, if you're, if you're let's say, a long-term hedonist, which means that I just want to get as much of it in as I can before I die, then the question is, why do we even care about the future of humanity? Because I'm not going to be around to experience it. It's not something that I will be conscious of. Mm. Uh, why do I care about the happiness of other people? Uh, this is a foundational question in, in ethics, but also in, in questions about the, the purpose of life. Um, I know I've gotten us onto sort of a, a weird tangent, but yeah. no, it's is, a good one. Yeah, I think it's important for thinking about these sorts of existential threats, because what we're doing is we are essentially saying, let's assume that AI can help us to, and by us, I mean intelligent conscious beings. AI can help intelligent conscious beings spread throughout the cosmos and survive, let's say indefinitely, mm -hmm. uh, somehow defeat the second law and just completely create all of every single point in space time into an intelligent conscious entity. Um, if this is possible, then it seems to me like this is a really, really awesome thing. 
and when we are talking about the creation of AI, uh, superintelligence, then we should be considering these kinds of benefits that we might get and not just the very, very short term ones uh, like, oh, they'll be able to solve political polarization in the United States. <laughs> well, that's that's great. I want the Trump signs taken down because it's 2021. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I would also like all the space time points in the universe to be conscious and intelligent mm. and their own unique beings who each coordinate with each other in interesting networked ways. Um, I'm just spitballing here. Yeah. Uh, but this is something that I would I would love to happen, and I think it might only be possible with with super intelligent AI. Now that that's an interesting way to argue for it, um, because it really does. It sort of um, it puts at least on par, maybe not the exact same par, but it puts them in the same ballpark. You know, it, well, we could die uh, from from not solving the alignment problem uh, in a hundred years, but we're all going to die anyway. Like we know we're going to die anyway, no matter what. But there's like this. It's an outside chance, but it's still a chance that we do create literally infinite existence um yeah. which I, like I, I feel like that would be that would be turning the dial on local meaning as high as you can go i don't think it would give some objective meaning uh, still in like in the in the senses that nagel you know kind of puts forth but but to to deny that there is a difference between the dial being where it's at and being cranked up to 10 on the local like that, that there's clearly a difference there yeah, and in fact, I would say that once you turn the entire universe into something meaningful, uh, then that would be as close to objective meaning as I would ever want to define. I mean, of to course, me, that just yeah. means that you know, you objective can... reality is itself uh, a sort of conscious, intelligent creature. Yeah. Uh, then we get to sort of, this is just like Spinoza's God. It is the universe, which is mm -hmm. this kind of perfect being. Uh, and again, I, I know all of this sounds sort of wacky and silly, which is why, you know, I don't usually write about it in my, even as a philosopher, uh, you have to, you have to stay uh, reasonable. It's too continental. Uh, can, yeah, exactly. You can't, well, even, even the continental folks aren't going to talk about like the yeah. future of, you know, intelligent life in the, in the cosmos too much. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just, you just sound like a crazy person. Uh, even though this is, this is stuff that I think all of us to some extent hope for. Um, I, I want intelligence and consciousness, uh, to survive forever. But it sounds it sounds very strange to talk about it, and that's why there's a sort of professional pressure to you know let's let's uh, let's keep it keep it <laughs> sensible, keep it normal. Which is I mean it's kind of you know it's a little absurd when you think about you know the like all of this detail going into the individual fluctuations in any particular consciousness, but when we talk about you know, on, on a grand scheme, you know, preserving consciousness itself, or so, that seems a little hoity-toity, but it's like, but if we care about like the, you know, the individual instance of consciousness in one person or, you know, I mean, how, like it, it's, it, you know, when you think about it for a couple of minutes, it seems like, well, no, it's just like really reasonable questions to be asking. Yeah. And I mean, this is like I pointed out is things we, we, that are inherent in our practices. Mm. So why do I have children? I mean, what's the point? It's not making me happier, uh, and I'll tell them that to their faces. You know that, that 
children do not make you happier. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if they do, you can pose the counterfactual question, which is, would you still have them even if they made you miserable? And almost everybody who was already going to have children will say yes. Uh, clearly, having children, being happy is not part of the, the, the causal reasoning that is prompting you to have them. Uh, so then why are we having them at all? And most people just don't have a good answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, which is why I sort of included the jab about antinatalism. Yeah. There when talking about uh, opposition to creating AI. Um, when you think about having children, it's this weird sense of, I want to live forever, or I want a part of me to continue. Maybe not my memories and my personal identity, but something about intelligence and consciousness and my actions and the things that I do in my life will have mm. some impact on the future of humanity. And yeah. it's, it's strange to think about, but that is why most people have children, I, I conjecture. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, it's, it really surprised me that people actually do answer. Yes. Like if, if granted that having kids would make you like, my answer is just no there. Like if it like, like, and, and I guess I'm weird for saying that, but like my answer is just simply no. Like I, maybe I'm weird. Maybe. I think we're probably both in different ways, but as a philosopher, what I can say is that we're just outlining two different positions here in yeah. the space, which yeah. is great. So you can outline, here's the hedonist position or the sort of long-term hedonist position mm -hmm. uh, who says, you know, I'm just doing these things to be happy and to experience happiness. And I care about other people's happiness as well. And I want to maximize the total amount of happiness that exists. Mm -hmm. um, but I am outlining a, a more, let's call it old fashioned, you might even call it ancient position <laughs> that says that it's not about, uh, I don't care about my own happiness or the happiness of others. I care about making some permanent changes in the world uh, that will, in some sense, last forever. Yeah. In which, you know, uh, Benatar calls you a monster for doing so. <laughs> yeah. Benatar is not a fan of the fact that I have created not just one, but, but two people. No, no. Actually, another tangent I wanted to ask you about. Um, what is your, do you have a, um, a view about the... Uh, I guess, source or, or the hard problem of consciousness? And does that affect your views on AI? Uh, that is a difficult question. <laughs> uh, I do not have an official position about the hard problem of consciousness. Most of my uh, research allows me to conveniently sidestep these problems mm -hmm. um, because I just have to say something like, okay, well, if we create either a narrow AI or general AI, what are the risks and the benefits uh, to these things? What kinds of harms can they do? Uh, and I don't usually have to worry too much about the harms or the benefits to the AI system itself. But there are some of my colleagues who do think about this problem, mm -hmm. um, about the question of if you create an artificial general intelligence, um, does it begin to have some kind of value uh, at that at some point should you consider its own pleasures and pains when making these calculations um, this is also related to the question of having children you know when you talk about having children it's strange to say well i'm doing it for the sake of the child just about nobody says that um, because these people don't actually exist yet yeah. um, but then once they exist in some sense 
then all of a sudden you have to consider their their value and and their interests in some way. Um, but the the unsatisfying short answer to your question is I don't have an official <laughs> position about that. Um, personally, my view is that if you create a machine that is complicated enough that it will have consciousness in some way and here complicated again i have no idea what that means um, <laughs> my favorite theory of consciousness is julia tononi's um information okay. processing uh, uh theory is in integrated information theory uh that's that's my that's my favorite but that's just a personal favorite uh i think that tononi has done some really really great work with trying to empirically validate uh, his hypothesis about consciousness. Um, it's almost, I think, the only game in town when it comes to a scientifically rigorous theory of consciousness. Um, that's not the only reason why I like it. I think, generally speaking, that um, integrated networks are, are a really robust way of thinking about relationships and consciousness and identity mm -hmm. yeah. uh, as well. Um, so that's that's my my perhaps unsatisfying answer, which is I think that uh, I'm a materialist about consciousness. Unlike say David Chalmers, I believe that yeah. if you create a system that has enough of this value that Tononi calls phi, that it will be conscious. Um, but I don't think you need to have a conscious AI system in order to worry about the things it's going to do and yeah. the benefits that it could it could have for us. Yeah, yeah, it certainly would complicate perhaps the, especially from an expected utility perspective, but from our own self-interest perspective, it it really doesn't change much. Um, you know, maybe it could empathize with our pain or something like that and fail to destroy us, take pity on us or something. But it could, I mean, to be fair, it could come to that conclusion whether it was conscious or not. Yeah, so I will say I am uh, a sort of a moral realist, hmm. uh, which sometimes feels unpopular, but there's this <laughs> Phil Papers survey that shows that like 56% of professional philosophers are moral realists. Really? Uh, I thought it would be lower. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. Um, hmm. There's also some, some work from psychologists like, well, philosophers and psychologists like uh, uh, Goodwin and Darley and, and Nichols uh, that tries to argue that most people are intuitively moral realists. Um, but that, that's not, of course, an argument. That's just some psychology. Sure. Um, but I, I think that there's good reason to, to believe that uh, a super intelligent being actually would discover uh, the value of intelligent and conscious beings and respect us and care about us. Mm. Um, so this is, this is a separate issue. This is getting beyond my, my little Pascal's AI wager yeah. article. Uh, this is actually another, another paper I've just written uh, and I don't want to get too deep into the details about it, um, but I, I suspect that if there are objectively real moral facts, uh, that you would expect a super intelligent being to be very good at identifying those facts and reasoning about them. Um, and therefore, we might have less to worry about in, in the other branch that I put on the diagram of, of AI destroying humans if it turns out that moral realism is true. Hmm. Interesting. I guess as a, as a, I don't want to force you to talk about a paper that's still secret yet, but um, as a, as a an assumption, maybe on that side is that 
if it were not conscious, um, it would have to be able to discover the principles that ground the moral realism non-experientially. So for instance, if you're a, um, you know, a moral realist of some sort of a utilitarian bend, you might, it's conceivable at least that arriving at that conclusion would be dependent on the agent thinking about that, thinking about that um, to itself experience the differences between your pleasure and pain and then be able to apply that to what is likely other conscious creatures. Yeah, so I don't want to say that an AI system would need to actually believe or think or care about mm. these moral claims, just as long as it acts according to them. Uh -huh. uh, so for instance, if, if an artificial agent, and now I'm calling it an artificial moral agent because it's discovered the moral fact, uh, if it acts respectfully towards other humans, mm. uh, then to me, that is at least minimally a win. Uh, now, of course, there are going to be, uh, for instance, our good friend Immanuel Kant is going to say, well, if it doesn't actually believe those things that it's acting on, then it is not an agent worthy of our mutual respect in some way. Mm. And that's fine. I'm not going to get too worried about that. Um, as long as, for instance, uh, this artificial moral agent is capable of identifying facts that cause it to respect and care about humans and all the way that we respect and care about each other. And it might even be better than us at doing so. It this could is easily the, the fun be. Thing. Yeah. yeah, there was a, there's an article in, um, in a book called Robot Ethics 2.0 edited by uh, Pat Lynn and some other people um, where I think it's Peterson argues that a super intelligence might also be super ethical hmm. uh, on the grounds that if it were super intelligent, it would be very, very good at discovering facts hmm. about respecting others and, and creating more overall happiness. You mentioned Sam Harris as one of the kind of like people in the public sphere talking about this. He made one point that I really liked a lot, which is, um, you know, th this would force us to clarify what ethics or what, you know, systems of ethics we respect and which ones we don't. Um, you know, it's not where no one's going to be a moral relativist when we're programming the AI. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, a great um, benefit to robot ethics and AI ethics is that it actually forces ethicists to be more specific about what we mean by things like respect and consent and benefit and even things that are well worked out in the law, like discrimination. I mean, there's been decades of, of discrimination law, but only recently it's emerged that, uh, for instance, a, an automated system that is evaluating credit scores uh, cannot actually, it can, it can use, it, it can exclude uh, facts about your gender or your race but it can use other features that are correlated with those yeah. in ways that wind up being uh, producing outcomes that are um, disparate. And so the question is, okay, is this a case of discrimination or not? Mm. And these are new kinds of questions that actually force us to get clear about what we mean by things like discrimination and respect uh, and dignity, which I think is great. Uh, because we no longer can sort of wave our hands and ambiguously say, well, you know, you have to be a person of good character who just has all the virtues. You have to be wise and temperate and just and beneficent <laughs> and non-maleficent. And it's like, okay, yeah. what does that mean? Program sure. that into a machine. I have to know how to do it because I'm making this machine right now. 
and the machine is going to be driving around on the street and I have to know what it's going to do. Mm. Yeah, it really does. It does shift us from, which is not to say that something like, you know, Aristotelian virtue ethics isn't valuable to, to humans, that. but <laughs> really, I'm no, a I'm fan of it. I was, oh, okay. I was joking. I, 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 saw you, uh, I saw you had Patrick Lee Miller on the show and I'm, I'm, friend, <laughs> I'm good friends with Patrick. Uh, okay. So. Yeah, we discussed um, a few Black Mirror episodes that were interesting. Yeah, I just I just tease him and others about about virtue ethics. I think I think it is actually a very valuable theory, but I also mm. think it has serious problems with with ambiguity of that sort. Oh, where, oh for sure. You know, if you if you try to clarify, okay, what is wisdom and temperance and beneficence? You know, there's it's, you get a little circular. Important. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, for sure. But yeah, no, I, I share your, your excitement about the clarifying nature of, of actually developing these systems because, yeah, we're not just going to be able to allow anything at that point. Um, I'm realizing also, though, that we're, uh, we're closing in on your hard stop. So I wanted to give you the opportunity just to, uh, to plug you know, anything that you're doing. Where can people find your work, um, get in contact with you, et cetera? Yeah, so I am... Let's see, where can people find me? Well, they can always email me. I'm an academic philosopher. Uh, I get a ton of emails and I, I try to respond to them. <laughs> um, I, let's see, plugging things, plugging things. I don't know. I have some articles in the works. I have some projects going on, but God, I really feel like I should, I should be more good at self-promotion uh, <laughs> at this point. Um, I will include links to things like your website, for instance. Yeah, you could you could look at DerekLieben.com, and that's going to have updates on all of my media appearances and articles and events, anything that's going on. I'll put it up there. Awesome, awesome. Derek, stay on the line, um, but thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, well, I hope that you uh, found that episode as interesting as I did. Like I said, it was very fun to, uh, to talk with Professor Lieben. And, uh, and if you want to find out more about his work, I will leave links to both the article that we reference and uh, all of his other work in the description below. If you want to support this show, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can share this show on Twitter or on social media. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can like this video on YouTube or on your podcast player or subscribe on either of those things. Uh, you can discuss it on your own show and link back to this one. And you can also connect me uh, with or recommend guests or topics to cover on the show. You can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave. <laughs>